Welcome to another episode of Kosher Money. Today we're talking careers. Are you feeling stuck in your career? Are you looking for your first job and you need some guidance? How about help getting a raise? Do you ever feel burnout at work? Unrelated, do you ever wonder how much a yeshiva family needs to make ends meet? We discussed that and much more in this episode. We were privileged to have Lakewood's Svi Peratinsky join us in the Kosher Money studio. We discussed everyone's first job, how to build a prosperous career. It was a really, really insightful conversation. Who is Svi Peratinsky? I'm glad you asked. He is a socio professor at Turo's Graduate School of Social Work, where he trains social workers. He teaches courses. He's also an active researcher. Oh, and by the way, he's also a psychologist, does a lot of work in the mental health field. And he has a clinical practice in Lakewood. But wait, there's more. For the past 10 years, he's been guiding people in their careers. He's a counselor, really good at what he does, or at least he's an amazing talker. Um, Grab a pen for this one. A lot of awesome data points, really gets into it, discusses numbers, enjoyed it. And without further ado, let's go. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. So people come to you, they're struggling in their job, they need to find a job. What does a typical conversation look like when someone sits down with you? Yeah, so it really depends on uh, the particular person and um, what the circumstances are. I would say about 40% of what I get is coal guys, um, ranging in age from you know mid to mid twenties to early thirties, maybe a little older than that, um, looking to go to work for the first time. I'd say that's about forty percent, um, and they often, you know, they spent a lot of time learning in yeshiva, and they have limited exposure to the workplace. They have a limited sense of their own uh, skills and abilities in that area, um, and it's really about helping them develop a plan and taking those first steps. Um, I also get a fair number of uh, young women. Um, you know, after seminary or returning to the workforce, women uh, maybe were out of the workforce for a bit, raising their children, they want to go back. Um, and then another significant demographic is people, uh, it's usually men, but it could be women as well, in their late 30s, early 40s, who kind of hit a plateau career-wise and recognize, okay, I need to earn more money, I want to, you know, should I switch career- careers? Is there a way I can leverage my current experience? Um, so, you know, really runs the gamut of a lot of different issues. Interesting. So so what would you say is the general theme of the advice you're giving people that either hit a roadblock or are looking to get into the workforce for the first time? Yeah. So it's hard to, to capture both of those situations with under the same umbrella because okay. they are really different. Um, let me start first with the people entering the workforce for the first time. Um, I think the first key thing that almost everyone um, I meet, I discuss is viewing it as more of a process as opposed to decision. So people come in not having any work experience, looking for that first job, and they view, okay, I need to pick what field I need to go into, make that decision, and then it will, it will you know, kind of the train will, will leave the station and I'll get to my destination. Um, that mindset puts a lot of pressure on that first job, on that first decision, um, usually provokes a lot of anxiety. Am I making the right decision? Are there alternatives that are better? Um, and... I often find helping people understand it more as a process. So you're kind of entering a job career development process that's going to take five to ten years, depending on on circumstances. And 
um, that first job is just a first job. Or um, if you decide to go for academic uh, you know, training, there are a lot of different ways you can apply that particular degree that you're getting and kind of sink into it as, as a process of experiencing, um, you know, trying different things and seeing where it develops. I find um, it's a poor analogy, but the analogy of dating, Shadokham, is, is mm-hmm. often good. Um, it's not like I'm going to start Shadokham, find the person, and be married. You're starting a process, and you recognize it could take time, and there are ups and downs. The same thing is with career development. Um, so I think that it goes for um, entry-level career people. That's why college is so nerve-wracking, because they say, we know you don't know what you want to do, but pick something, and then you're married to for the next four years in your whole life. Yeah. So the truth is, um, at least in the United States, um, it feels like that, but it really isn't. Um, undergraduate education, those first four years, is, is, is a lot of general education, and no matter what, there are very few uh, bachelor's degrees that are terminal, meaning those are the degrees that you actually need mm-hmm. to lead to employment. There are some, like engineering, computer science, um, but many of them are, you know, many uh, profession, professions require graduate school. And you can have an undergraduate major in anything um, virtually and proceed to graduate school in something else. So even for those people, um, I often have the conversation like, listen, you know, you don't have to declare a major for your first couple of years. Take your time. See what you're interested in. Explore it a little bit, maybe um, through classes, but also through a part-time job or an internship. Um, and even if, you know, you major in – I mean, I can use myself as an example. So my, my undergraduate degree is from Lakewood Yeshiva. Mm-hmm. Um, and subsequent to that, I earned a PhD in Columbia. So my undergraduate degree didn't have um, direct relation to my graduate training, but they were more, ha- more than happy to consider me as a candidate, and in some ways it, it actually was very beneficial. Um, so helping people see it as a process rather than I need to declare my major, my major is going to be you know, economics, and that means I'm going to be uh, an actuary or something like that. There's a long way from there to there, and there's a lot of opportunities to kind of figure things out. Um, so even although with graduate school, so say if someone's, uh, learned in Kyle for, you know, they're older and they're decided to go the professional route where they really need to maximize their time and they need to make sure that they do this quickly, they have a family to support. Um, right, those they don't, they don't have different. time for the five to ten year process. Yeah, those circumstances are very different when it comes to education. Um, uh, in the job market, it's not as tense because you can work a job for a year or two and switch. It's not, it's not as costly of an investment. But if you're 28 and you have four kids... And you're going to take four years to explore undergrad, different you know undergraduate options. For most people, that's not feasible, um, and they need to have a pretty tight plan coming in if they're going to pursue education. So, what are those two people who are 28 years old? They possibly have four children. They need to start earning meaningful income, and they can't start with a starting salary, even though. If they were to start with a starting salary, it would help build a career and a foundation of some sorts, but they need to try to overreach for a higher paying job. Yeah. So that is that is a challenge. Um, but uh, there are a number of things that people do, and it works, in my experience, fairly well. Um, so a couple, a couple of directions to take that question. Let me first focus on those that are going to pursue education. So for many of them, they have yeshiva degrees. Um, and yeshiva undergraduate degree, um, there are many universities that would accept it, and there are many programs that would accept it. So if they're looking to pursue something like accounting or even actuarial science or law or psychology, which is what I did, or um, speech therapy or engineering, there are many uh, ways they can use their existing yeshiva degree or yeshiva credits and leverage that to kind of cut down on the time. Um, also, 
you, uh, people in that situation tend to take advantage of faster educational options. So they'll look for programs online, or um, Turo has a number of programs like that, where you know they're, they're accelerated, they include classes over the summer, um, they allow you to use uh, testing to supplement uh, to your credits, um, and they'll kind of try to you know, the, the U.S. system of education is very slow-paced, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, and it's meant for a different lifestyle. But from people, they have to kind of figure out tips and tricks. But there is a fair amount out there that you can do, assuming you know what you want to get into. So there's a, a nice percentage of people that do that. The other thing is a lot of uh, people in that situation are reliant on government programs. They don't – many – some of them have hard uh, income limits. But many of them don't, or the income limits, especially if you have a lot of kids, are relatively high. So they have an opportunity to wean themselves off it, even at entry-level jobs. Mm-hmm. So they can start at a job that maybe makes some money, maybe they're, you know, they'll still stay under the key income limits for some programs, and eventually slowly move past that. Often their wives start working a little bit less, so the income kind of relatively st- stays the same. Um, so there are some stopgap things um, they can do. It is a hard time of life, that transition, and... One of the things that I um, highlight for people is, in my opinion, that's the time for their Iker Messias Nefesh for learning, the time when they sacrifice the most for those years in yeshiva. It is not while they're in yeshiva, because when you're relatively young and you have a small family, especially if you're getting family support, but even without it, the combination of you know your wife's earning, your expenses are not that high, um, you have a relatively flexible schedule, it's a very, uh, it's great. It's a, it's a lovely time. It's when you're 28 with four kids working an entry-level job. You have no time. You don't even barely, you know, struggle to find opportunities to learn. Mm. Your wife is, you know, had enough or is overwhelmed with her job and you have a bigger family. Your expenses are higher. That's like the payback time. So sometimes a lot of it is about a mental shift, about accepting that, okay, now I have to sacrifice to pay back for those years. It usually doesn't last that long. So in my experience... Um, a lot of young men in that in that uh, situation catch up fairly quickly. If they start, you know, twenty eight, twenty nine, it's really like a five. I would say about five years, five six years. Um, if they're, you know, if they pursue the appropriate training, or if they're entrepreneurial, or if they're, you know, if they have the skills to to succeed financially and career wise, most of them catch up really quick to their peers who may have started younger. Um, from what I see, so it's a it's a temporary period. It is difficult. There are some workarounds, um, but generally speaking, that is that is really the sacrifice for those years they spent learning. Do you find in these call families, the ages 28, 29, when they start yeah. to say, hey, I got to go find a career, I can't um, live off of whatever it is that I'm currently doing to support my family? Is that the age? So over the years that I've been doing this, I would say I've seen a shift. So when I started this work 10, 11, 12 years ago, I would have said the average age is closer to early 30s, maybe mm. 31, 32. That was the average age of coil guys coming to me. Um, now it's definitely lower, probably 27, 28 is, is the number I would put. Um, what caused that shift? I could speculate. It's really hard to know. I don't have you know any real evidence. Part of it may be economics, you know, the 2009 um, crash, lim- limiting family support and kind of ushering people forward. I think there are also probably demographic shifts in terms of who 
goes to cuddle in the first place. Um, so maybe we're increasingly capturing a wider uh, selection of the Orthodox community, um, and some of those people are more apt to leave younger. Um, it's really hard to know the, 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 the demographics and the religious culture in Lakewood also generally is shifting, um, and I think that may p- p- play a role in who I see. So I think it's a combination of different factors. Gotcha. So when someone is... 28, 29, they're coming over to you for some sort of advice that in five to six years, they'll be able to hold their own. What do you tell them in terms of entrepreneurship versus taking a job? Do you weigh their ability or what you think their ability is to start a business and the challenges that come along with that? Do you say try it out and then they come back to you and you see how they're doing because if they do go the the route of entrepreneurship and there's a lot of that in Lakewood and a lot of people doing it successfully they can relieve the burden a whole lot quicker than actually taking a job and climbing the ladder with a career there well yes and no I don't know if um, statistically that that particular oh, I make uh, up the stats true, as yeah. I go okay yeah. so it may or may not be true that yeah. entrepreneurship leads it, it leads it faster I think on the high end it does meaning people are, are successful entrepreneur, entrepreneurs um, given the kind of work I do I see a lot of unsuccessful entrepreneurs who mm-hmm. for them maybe set them back going down that road but um, so it's a great question and it's actually uh, one of the questions that's frequently kind of the first on the minds of people looking to leave college, they look around, they say, hey, this guy went into nursing homes, this guy's doing property management, this guy started a, a, a business of some type of retail, um, and then I see I have an accountant and a lawyer and someone went to dental school down the block, so what am I, you know, what should I do? So it really is, okay, so I'll tell you like this, one of the things I do to try to um, be helpful to people is I try to get information about this stuff. So I'm always talking to people and asking them these kind of questions. Um, and you'll definitely speak to some successful people who would tell you, never work for someone else a day in your life. Why would you you know, spend that time and energy putting in all that work to earn a salary, um, and then you know, someone else is, is, is profiting off the business? Go start something on your own. Go do something where you bring your own value. Go into sales. Open a company. Um, you, know, you, you can't compare the financial prospects of that and, and the freedom and the potential. Um, yeah, you've got to be crazy to work for someone else. Then you'll speak to someone else. Another successful person who will say, oh, it's so risky, most of the business, you know, 90, whatever statistic they quote, 90% of the businesses fail within the first three months. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a family to support. Why don't you try something, you know, reliable and steady, and you'll, you know, build yourself up over time and eventually be successful. So you hear both things. Um, in terms of the data, there's not a lot, there's a lot out there in the, in the, in the non-Jewish world. There's very little um, specific to the firm community, and the dynamics are so different that I, I'm not even sure how relevant the broader data would be. Mm-hmm. What I tend to help people focus on is really they have to um, do a thorough assessment of their own abilities. And this is what, where I find the kind of the split is. For those people that have a tolerance for risk and are aggressive, I would use that word, um, and are persuasive and they're able to get things done and they're always, you know, they're always the person standing up and doing things. Um, there's really no reason to go the professional route. Let them start something, um, especially in a place like Lakewood. Once you get the ball rolling, there's a lot of opportunity, there's a lot of support, there's a lot of capital available. Um, and so if you have the skills and the personality, um, and it's hard to pinpoint. I mean, I picked some factors. It's hard to pinpoint. But if, if kind of it feels like a good shot, I would encourage people like that to definitely pursue something entrepreneurial or sales or management, something more like that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you have someone who's, you know, 
book smart, for the lack of a uh, you know, better term, who's very responsible, very uh, on top of things, learns quickly, very good at being organized and detail-oriented, and um, really uh, excels in those areas, but isn't the biggest risk, risk taker, is not that aggressive, is not you know, going to boss other people around to persuade people to buy a product, um, they're generally speaking much better off going a, other professional routes. Um, so it really boils down to you know, kind of learning your own skills and experience. Now, there are lots of people in the middle where it isn't so clear. So you could kind of, when I'm doing uh, career counseling, it kind of could chop off this percent and you know, the bell curve. Mm-hmm. Those extremes are pretty easy. What do you do with people in the middle? It's really individual conversation, what kind of family support they have. I could try to use some kind of standardized assessments to try to answer that question. But ultimately, it's a lot about trying things. And like I said, you have to look at it as a process. So your suggestion I've made many times, listen, go get a job. Um, Let's not make a long-term decision right now. Go get a job, see what's out there, and get a better flavor for how you can best contribute. The thing I would add to that is because the financial demands are so high on from in, uh, you know, from Bali Mishbacha, and they need to earn so much money. Um, you really have to excel at the career that you've chosen, chosen just to make ends meet. So, in order to do that, um, what I find is you're best playing to your specific strengths rather than um, kind of picking something that you would be more middle of the road in. So, really think about okay, versus everybody else, it's a competitive environment. Let me look around. What is it that I can do? Where am I the top 10%? Am I the top 10% at getting things done? Am I the top 10% of being persuasive? Am I the top 10% of being organized? Am I the top uh, 10% of understanding and learning new things? And then play to that strength. What career is that the primary skill that I need? Because people often want something, you know, they may want something more, view something as more exciting or more meaningful or... But if you're not going to play to your strengths, you're not going to really stand out. Like, could you learn and get to be middle of the road? Um, maybe. But is that enough to support from family? Probably not. Mm-hmm. So where can you really excel? So you're not just ask. pushing everyone to Amazon, right? No, absolutely not. Is there a lot of Amazon? In so there? there's a lot of very successful Amazon businesses in Lakewood. Um, and people clearly make you know, uh, quite a lot of money doing it. Um, Again, it's really up to your personality. If what are the traits for those people that are very successful at, you know, including Siat Shmaya and all that? Yeah, a lot of his luck. What sort of traits do you see as a common theme between people that are very successful in the in the internet world of selling things? So, again, like you said, Siat Shmaya, luck, that does play an enormous role. And um, I find often people... It's a general and a cultural thing in the United States where um, we tend to look at the individual's contribution to their situation as opposed to the outside environment, how that plays in. Um, so so uh, there's a bias towards interpreting someone as successful as because of their personal characteristics mm-hmm. as opposed to attributing um, it. Uh, there's a name for it. It's a very popular. There's a lot of research on it in psychology. Basically, the idea is that individuals, that people tend to attribute uh, behavior to characteristics of the individual as opposed to the situation. So we overvalue how much individual characteristics influence behavior and circumstances and neglect situational factors. So for example, if you see someone driving angrily, your first thought is, oh, look at this idiot, you know, look how he drives, attributing his attribution driving to him. Theory? Attribution, fundamental attribution bias, that's what it is. Okay. Fundamental attribution bias. 
Thank right. you. So when you see someone successful, often this bias leads you to attribute it to their personal characteristics as opposed to situational, environmental, contextual, random factors. So a lot of people um, would say, oh, what are the characteristics of someone who's a successful entrepreneur? looking only at the individual contribution, mm-hmm. which probably, hard to know, is probably a small percent of what, you know, what, actually, what actually determines people's success. But that being said, there are definitely characteristics. I think tolerance for risk is important. Um, a certain amount of interpersonal uh, aggressiveness, uh, persuasiveness, the ability to you know, get other people on board with their ideas, um, and a strong work ethic. If, you're, if you want a nine to five, you know, I want to cl- wash my hands of my work at five o'clock, don't go into anything entrepreneurial. That's not possible. Mm-hmm. Even professional roles, it's really not possible, but at least there is some boundaries around it. Um, you really have to be the kind of person that wants to make things happen at all costs. Um, those are definitely some of the characteristics. You mentioned earlier people that may be getting stuck in a career in their 30s and 40s and they've plateaued. What advice do you give those people who can't necessarily move away from their income stream, but they want to find more money they want to find something more meaningful how do you advise them so that is a very very difficult um, situation because they're usually reliant on the current income they have Um, they've invested a lot in the career that they have and it's uh, difficult and you know frankly risky and uh, also anxiety provoking to think about switching so a couple of things I mean the first is really to do a thorough assessment of why they're stuck so there are certain patterns that I've seen certain typical Uh, pitfalls that lead people to be in those situations. Um, And so you want to really understand why it is. Um, So for example, often it's, um, and employers won't like me saying this, but often it's staying at the same job for too long because you're comfortable, you like the people. This episode sponsored by employers, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Ouch. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm sponsored by employers. Right, right. That's all good. Um, so, yeah, so staying at, a, at an employer for too long because in today's market, you do have to, even if you're not going to leave, you do have to, your employer has to believe you have the ability to leave to get significant raises. That, that, that just, it just boils down to that. In my experience, I've seen uh, people ask for raises and either don't get them or get very small raises. And all of a sudden, when they have another author on the table, the money's there. Mm-hmm. Um, so people feel very comfortable, that, especially if it's their first job or their first you know, big-time job. A lot of cars to type, There's interpersonal relationships. And they, they feel comfort. And they're, you know, they're kind of doing their thing and three, four, five years go by and they haven't really gotten raises, they haven't increased their responsibilities. So that's one of the, uh, the circumstances that I, f- I find leads to stagnation and helping those people figure out um, how can they, um, not necessarily with their current employer, often it means, it means switching jobs, how could they get a job that has more responsibility, um, that they have to learn new skills in order to perform um, and that will lead to their kind of growth. Um, the other thing that I often work with people in that circumstance is figuring out how they can leverage their existing skills to get more. So often I find people are, are quick to like, oh, I'm going to abandon this career. It's going nowhere. Well, that might not be the wisest. If you've put in five to ten years and you have a certain skill set and a certain level of experience, um, the first thought is, okay, what can I do with what I already have? How can I um, somehow make more money? Sometimes that means switching jobs. Sometimes that means um, part-time, you know, side gig kind of thing. Sometimes it means leveraging that into something more entrepreneurial. Um, sometimes that means retraining and going back to school, but not for something completely different. Um, so, I mean, a classic example would be a Rebbe, you know, successful Rebbe. He's maybe 
you know, in his 40s, um, supported his family with it, but, you know, Hassan has this, he needs more money, um, and he also sees, like, how much more, how many more, many more years do I want to run after, you know, third grade kids? I, I kind of feel like I'm losing my my motivation, and maybe I could do it for another 5, 10, 15 years, but at some point I have to do something else, who chooses to go to social work. And maybe it's a sacrifice, but, you know, doesn't teach in the afternoons for a year and change, retrains as a social worker, starts, you know, in the afternoons with a small, you know, working in a clinic, gaining skills and experience, and over the next five to ten years develops a reputation. That's leveraging his existing educational skills and connections. Um, people will trust him, people know who he is, the principals, the schools, the other rebaim. And then eventually he could maybe, if he chooses, transition into full-time practice, where there's a potential, you know, a, a little bit, a potential for income, uh, maybe a, a kind of a little bit of a change of pace of work. Um, so that would be one example of kind of taking what you have and seeing how you can, you know, step to the left, a step to the right. Um, so that's often um, helping people figure that out. Interesting. Let's talk numbers. So I saw a statistic where the average family size in the Orthodox Jewish communities in Brooklyn and Lakewood is roughly 6.6, 6 to 7 children. How much does it cost, from your viewpoint, for a from family to live with 6 to 7 children in a from community so i get that question a lot and it's a very critical question and i encourage young people even you know as scary as it is to think of those numbers to have that some general sense of where they'll be 15 20 years from now in terms of financial need um so honestly the last six months there's been a lot of change in economic conditions particularly in lakewood but i think all over the united states so i i, I don't feel like i have a, a good finger on current numbers mm-hmm. and i think they're probably higher than the numbers that that i've you know kind of previously intuited um my sense is and everybody's standards of living is different but my sense is to make ends meet and what i mean by that is paying tuition sending your kids to camp having a car um owning a home in lakewood you need probably uh, you, the number i used to give was one hundred and fifty thousand combined family income um i think that would be tight and that number has increased a lot over the last six months to a year, um, and it's probably closer to 170, 175. Um, but it's uh, the thing I would say about it, though, is there are many, 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 many ways to reach that number, and sometimes families reach them in kind of hidden ways that are hard to see from the outside. Like what? So a lot of examples. I mean, government programs are a significant part of what supports particularly young families in Lakewood, but even more established families. Um, And they're worth a significant amount of money. And um, so having something like Medicaid, where you have zero medical expenses, no copays, no, you know, no dental costs, no nothing um, for from family. I mean, you got to estimate that's worth about thirty, forty thousand dollars. And that right away adds into that one fifty. So then there are other government programs. So government programs is a big source of, of kind of hidden income. Um, another thing is family support, and I wouldn't underestimate that. So getting a significant chunk of money for a down payment on a home so that your mortgage for the next 30 years is significantly lower is the equivalent of another twenty, twenty-five, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year. Um, and that is uh, another, you know, a lot of from families um, of you know, the baby boomer generation are able to help their, their kids. Um, and grandchildren in some cases. So you definitely, um, that's another kind of hidden thing. A lot of Lakewood families are dual income. So the typical working family in Lakewood, um, you know, they're both working each, you know, maybe the wife a little less hours. 
so maybe 60 to 80 to 90 um, thousand a year. The husband, maybe 80 to 120, um, something in that range. That would be like an average family, um, established family. And between the two incomes, you're getting, you're hitting that 150. So there's many, 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 many ways that families kind of get there. Now, even at that number, let's say previously I would say 150, now I'd say maybe 170, 175. It is not luxurious. This is compared to the median salary. It's three times the median salary in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So you would think these people are doing really, really, really well. Well, um, obviously they're from lifestyle. It's not the case. It's just making, you know, paying basic expenses, making ends meet um, to be, you know. So... Looking at these numbers here, I wrote them down. At some point, if someone's going to earn or uh, earn more, they're not going to be eligible for the Medicaid. So, how do you balance those two, where someone is almost not incentivized to try to grow? You know, if they're making ends meet, they're not going to want to try to find a career, assuming that they could earn two hundred, two hundred fifty. If that means a reduction in their benefits, thereby putting them right back financially to where they started. So how do you balance that too? So this veers into the realm of politics to some degree. Um, But just to reflect your question, I do think that is a a significant concern in the way public uh, funding programs are organized. Each particular program on its own isn't so difficult. So let's say, for example, Medicaid, your kids could stay on much longer, especially if you have a large family, so the income limits are much higher. You could pay into it at some points, income points. So there's a, it's pretty graduated. It isn't that stark. But when you look at the full package of government support, so Medicaid, food stamps, WIC, earned income credit. In New Jersey, there's HEAP, which is heating, and, um, and there's... Um, you know, funding for baby uh, child care. And if you look at the full package, the the amount that sometimes people start losing when they earn income, that does, that is definitely, in my view, a deterrent. Um, so a couple things about that. So first of all, on the extreme end, there are some people where they've, I, I, I feel they like crossed the line where it is actually not, probably not, no longer worth it for them to try to establish, a, a, you know, a career. Um, if you're, in your upper 40s, and you have eight to ten kids, and you never worked a day, you, you kind of learned to kill or other you know things, but never worked a secular job. It's 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 really, I don't know how economically sensical it is at that point to do it. I mean, there are people, you know, again, exceptions to every rule, and, and individual circumstances might differ very much. But on average, a lot of those people, I find it's more a matter of figuring out, okay, I need X amount more dollars. How can I figure it out without losing whatever system, whatever financial system kept me afloat? I need to make a chasana. How can I come up with another 20 grand? Um, so there definitely is, there definitely, you know, on the extreme, there are cases where it doesn't make sense. Um, for everyone else, it means a short-term hit sometimes. People actually lose money going to work. Um, and you have to know that's part of the sacrifice. Like I said before, um, you may, when you first go to work, lose money. Your expenses will go up. You have buy a second car, commute, mm-hmm. um, extended hours babysitting, um, reduction in government programs. So your income goes down, cold check, and then your expenses go up. And it takes an, a few years to catch up. The hope is, and in most cases this is true, that over time, that five to ten year mark, it usually you see, okay, you start seeing the, the payback for, for, for that sacrifice. Um, but it does sometimes mean um, short-term redu- reductions, um, no question. There are those that say the government programs are there in a way to help people get started, right? And then you enter that murky territory where 
you want to ensure that you actually qualify in order to receive those funds. So how should families view the entire government program? And you touched on this a little bit, but more so to create a healthy relationship between the two so that people aren't getting to the point where they can't get they they can't even get off of it if they wanted to. So a lot of that is about awareness. So being aware, and just to compliment kosher money, I think that's something that you guys do a fabulous job. But helping people be aware early on of uh, their eventual financial needs and of the length of time it takes to start earning those those that kind of dollar, um, and so that they can kind of plan around their getting weaned off the government programs. So if you have a sense of what kind of career you want to go into, how long that kind of career takes to develop, what it's going to look like while you're working on it, what eventually it would be, you could start doing some kind of earlier planning. So I'll give you an example. So if you choose to go the professional route, say someone goes to law school. Mm-hmm. So they can stay on government programs while they're in law school, which is great. And it does help them get started because otherwise, you know, let's say they're a Kyle guy, 28, go to law school, they wouldn't be able to do that if they didn't have Medicaid and other uh, government support. But they can maintain the gov- their government programs throughout their stay in law school. When they graduate, 31, 32, and they get a job, depending on where they work, but assuming that they're getting a job in a big law firm in the city, that first paycheck plus the benefits that that job provides is often you know, easily offsets the, the government program. So for them, the transition is quite simple, not a big deal. On the other hand, if you have someone who's uh, goes into an entry-level job where the the income grows more slowly and more stead- steadily. In the beginning, it might not interfere with government programs because it's still on low enough level, but there is that zone between where they're making a lot and they're making a little, where they start losing, um, and that, that could be kind of challenging. So being aware of that and knowing it's, you know, where that window is, planning around it financially, um, it, 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 I think the key is just awareness and really understanding how these programs work. How does tuition play a role in these overall costs? We talk about the number 150, 175. What are the tuition costs? Let's say Lakewood. And we've got we've gathered that tuition in Lakewood might be lower than elsewhere, but there's no forgiveness. Um, what are the tuition costs you're, you're seeing in Lakewood? Yeah, so I don't have systematic data on it. Um, and I, I they definitely are lower than in other from areas, but it's catching up, and they have been going up. I would say most schools are probably around seven to ten per child. It really depends. Um, some schools are able to keep it a bit lower. Um, and in terms of, you know, yeah, because it's low, they they really do need to collect tuition, um, and the schools are desperate um, for the funding. So I mean, they're definitely. You know, aware of many situations where people, you know, the schools are very generous and they're fundraising on behalf of parents. Um, but yeah, I would say somewhere between ten and, 7 and 10 a child. Um, and it is a significant part of the budget. I mean, there are people who are able to get it as a job benefit or, you know, other ways of, of paying for it so it isn't as onerous. But for most people, it's just straight up out of your bank account post-tax dollars. And that's that's quite an expense. I know of, uh, not in Lakewood, but a, a mom who has I think six or seven girls and she became a teacher and I think tuition was cut in half per child so there were meaningful savings there that she would never have gotten or had she taken a higher paying job it wouldn't have been financially uh, feasible very interesting so we covered tuition we covered um, the cost of living there we covered entrepreneurship the skills Um, let's talk about 
in today's world where women are getting jobs either to support their families um, during during or beginning of the marriage, or as you mentioned, part of a dual income to help make it work, what are you seeing as employment opportunities specifically for young women in our community, and how do you best prepare them? A lot of people are moving away from becoming teachers, maybe because it's not as financially well off as it used to be. Um, if a young woman walks into your office and says, I need career advice, where do you guide them in 2021? So that's a great question. And that is a demographic um, that I definitely see coming through. Um, and it, like everything, it's a really a personal decision. And you have to really get to know the young person in front of you um, to guide them individually, what makes the most sense for them. Um, it depends a lot on what they want their life to look like, what kind of uh, dreams and ideals that they hold, um, which is sometimes a difficult conversation with young people. Um, it also depends on their particular skills and on their you know, family situation. Lakewood specifically is a uh, fantastic, right now, it's a fantastic job market for young women. There are um, hundreds, probably, of growing companies that are looking for talent. Um, and they're just constantly hiring. Um, you can go through the Job Wanted in any of the Liquid magazines, and you'll see page after page after page after page after page of, of, of pretty lucrative opportunities and salaries over the last year and have risen um, quite significantly. They're listing the salaries in the magazine. They are not, but if you you know, you know talk to people and see what they're getting, people are getting a lot more money. Would you like to um, see them listed, or it's not uh, <laughs> realistic? Everyone does, you know, yeah. no comment. <laughs> it could do what you want to do. But what industries, what are we talking about? What type of jobs? So Lakewood is a hotbed of real estate, healthcare, um, a lot of service interest industries. There are some really large companies um, that are, because there is, the job market is so uh hot in Lakewood. They, they're, many of the larger Lakewood companies are opening, opening offices across, satellite offices uh, across the United States because they cannot find enough workers in Lakewood. Mm. So a young woman who wants to get a job in Lakewood, I can guarantee you will get a job. Now, what co- a lot of them are office or you know back office kind of things. So for those jobs, um, good computer skills are essential, being organized, being responsible. Um, there are definitely people facing jobs, um, customer service jobs or accounts account payable or other things where you're on the phone with people a lot. Um, so people skills is always a plus. Um, but then again, the, because there are so many of these companies hiring other jobs, such as, you know, nursing, receptionist, teachers that you mentioned, um, there's a shortage because mm. there just aren't enough employees to fill these positions. Um, so Lakewood is a great job market and really, um, yeah, whatever they kind of choose to do, there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, I do see that I think perhaps as a result of this, there are less young women pursuing degrees um, and professions, which used to be previously popular. There are some other uh, pressure points on on that as well. Well, like speech therapy, OTPT. Yeah, speech, OTPT, something in the medical, um, special ed, uh, degrees like that. I I, I sense that it's a lower percent. Mm -hmm. I think the absolute numbers are probably similar, but there's a lower percent of people pursuing it. Um, Partially, I think, because of the easy availability and the... um, great opportunities in, mm. in business in Lakewood. Um, but also because... Without um, having to invest into college and all the years of lost wages. Correct, or, correct. Right. Um, um, but there are also some other pressure points to that. I think um, some of the economics of those specific fields, insurance reimbursements, I mean, outside the, I think, the bounds of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there's some other pressures that are, that are uh, there. Um, but there's a lot of opportunity, yeah, really, whatever you want to do. So based off of what you're saying, it sounds like someone in Baltimore... Columbus, Ohio, living there should 
go online, try to find these Lakewood publications, flip through the pages, there might be a lucrative position that is available to them out of town that is higher paying than whatever opportunity they have where they live locally. Absolutely. Um, and extending, especially now with remote work, right. but also a lot of these companies are opening offices in, in other Jewish communities, but even in non-Jewish communities, they're frankly, they need workers, so they're recruiting um, very widely. Um, they, yeah, definitely if you want to get a sense of, of what's available, um, yeah, that's a great idea. It's the, the thought process has completely shifted in terms of remote work, right? Have you seen businesses clamoring for people to come back, or this is the new normal? What do you think? It's a little bit of a push and pull. So my sense is um, most employers and managers want people back in person. Um, there are the rear employees that want to be in person, but most are very satisfied with working remote. Um, and so there's that increasing tension. Um, Lakewood is a little bit different. It's been in person throughout, so the remote work didn't entrench itself as much. But for people who work for you know bigger, larger corporations who work outside of Lakewood where a lot of it was remote... Um, there's been a lot of resulting job turnover. I mean, people left their job. If I have to go back to going into the city every single day, mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm out. And they've found work um, locally. Um, so yeah, I, I do think employees, you offering employees, if not a full remote option, but the ability to work remotely or flexibly is is critical if you want to uh, keep talented employees. There are people listening to this sitting in traffic on the way into the city. And uh, yeah, you, you go to your employer and say, hey, I think I'd like to work at home twice a week. I would recommend that with one caveat. Okay. Go look for a job that enables it and then go back to your employer and negotiate from a position of strength. Obviously, if you're doing your work well, if the employer isn't so happy with you, that caveat <laughs> might not lead to a, a promising career. Um, okay. So you mentioned the, the teacher shortage and I... Even here, I see ads for um, English, third grade English teachers, um, teacher assistants. There is clearly a shortage. And part of that is you, you don't see, um, I guess, over the last 10, 20 years, everything was OT, PT, whatever T, pushing young women into a specific field where they weren't we weren't necessarily glorifying this this career and the the benefits uh perhaps not financial in in starting something like this um so there's a twofold question a what are we what do we do about that right and b how do we emphasize or how do we look at a meaningful career versus a financially lucrative career so let me take the, the larger issue of meaningful versus financial yeah, um, and then maybe get to the specifics okay. um, about teachers. So that's actually something that comes up a lot in career counseling. Um, I find it particularly, you know, with a lot of age groups, but particularly with young people. Um, and their first thing is, but that job is not meaningful, but I want something meaningful. Um, and I often find that's actually a roadblock um, to engaging in a successful career and um, focusing on something that you think you will find meaningful, which is your brain's prediction of some future um, emotional outcome, which brains are notoriously bad at doing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure anyone listening had the everyday experience is going to be great and it was horrible, or there's going to be horrible and it was great. Our brains are really bad at predicting that kind of thing. Um, so people go in and, and um, maybe make less than ideal career decisions. So 
you know, being a teacher is a very meaningful job, but if you're not good at it, and it doesn't suit your personality, and you just um, are stressed every day and come back feeling like you got nothing done and you're not helping these kids, it's not meaningful. So I, I encourage people to... Well, one more point I want to add. Jobs, you can ask too much from a job, meaning there's a lot of things people want from their job. They want money. They want, um, you know, they want it to feel good about it. They want to be proud. They want it to be meaningful. They want it to have good social, a social experience. Um, they want it to be fun. They want it to be, and, and at a certain point, you're asking too much from your job. A job primarily is about uh, supporting your family. Now, it could be meaningful. It could also be fun. It could be convenient. You can, it's highly unlikely that it will meet all those criteria, and the more you start layering on, the less likely it is that you'll actually find something. So what I often encourage people to do is to look at other areas of their life where they can find meaning, and not necessarily look at the job as the source of that. You can have a job that's, you know, a job that you don't find so meaningful, but if it suits your personality, you're earning a lot of money, it's comfortable, you enjoy the work you're doing, and you volunteer, or you find meaning in your family, or your shul, or your chavrus, or your lafiyami, or whatever it is, for most people that's sufficient. The other thing is, meaning is something you can develop in almost any anything. And I'll, I'll, if I can tell a little yeah. anecdote. Yeah, please. <laughs> okay. So early, um, I'm a clinical psychologist. And um, so relatively early in my car- career, I was working with a gentleman who was, um, he was really struggling um, in a lot of ways. Um, I think probably not worth going into the details, but he was struggling. And I'm like, you know, gung-ho to be a therapist and I'm using every trick I have and really focused on him and supervision and trainings and I'm doing all my best work for about a year. I mean, it didn't get worse. Maybe it got marginally better. Not a lot of change. And then his uh, family member uh, asked, called in a favor and got him a job working in a warehouse, uh, doing entry-level warehouse work. Now, he couldn't, he didn't show up half the time. When he did show up, he wasn't a very effective worker. He, you know, it was difficult to deal with interpersonally. But it was a favor, and this person was really loving and supporting the warehouse manager and kept him on for an entire year. That year of work, by the end, he was on time, doing great work, they, to the point that they were giving him a raise, and they wanted to shift his responsibilities, you know, to take over something even more important. And he was a completely different person. Mm. So you don't have to do meaningful things by being in a career that directly provides that, like therapy or teaching. Everyone, I I find in every career, in every walk of life, there are opportunities to do good for other people. You just have to, when they come by, you have to take advantage of it and step up and do it. In some ways, you can contribute more when you're not directly in a helping profession. So this is kind of the conversation I have with a lot of people. Um, Are you looking for too much in a job? Are there other ways you can find meaning in your life? And are you underestimating how much meaning you'll actually get from other things um, besides, you know, whatever it is, the the field that you want to go into? Um, Now, there are people for whom the stars align and their personality and their skills and their financial situation. It makes sense for them to go into a helping profession. And for them, you know, for many of them, it's lovely and wonderful and it is meaningful. um, But I don't think it necessarily um, is something to prioritize. Um, to, To go to teachers, it is a very complex situation. I think there are a lot of reasons. There's no question that there's a shortage um, that exists from what I see in Lakewood as well, um, and certainly outside of Lakewood. I think there's a lot of reasons how that happened. Some of it is temporary. Honestly, I believe some of it is temporary due to corona fatigue, mm-hmm. um, especially in the schools where they had a lot of uh, corona-related protocols and drama. Um, teachers just don't want to deal with it, and they just rather go somewhere else. Interesting. Um, it was extremely stress- stressful for them to teach online. 
um, and some you know mixed online and in person and different days, and they were doing a lot of teachers ended up doing a lot of work that was unpaid to prepare online learning um, on their own with no support with all their kids home and at school at the same mm. time. So I think a lot of it is, is there's a burnout related to you know corona fatigue, but I do think there are some underlying longer term economic trends. There's so many jobs that are lucrative outside of teaching. Um, it's just not viewed the same way anymore culturally. Um, the problem is, is ultimately the best way to bring in more teachers is to pay them more. Um, and the challenge with that is then tuition rises. And it f- further fuels this cycle that we, you know, the more money you need to earn, the more money you need to pay teachers, the more tuition, the more parents need to make, the less teachers you're going to have. It's going to kind of fuel the, the, the hyperinflation, which I think is really happening in the community. Um, so that isn't necessarily the simplest solution. Um, I don't have any easy answers. It is a thorny, thorny, thorny problem. Also, even if you do find teachers, the quality of the people um, teaching, um, you don't want you want people who are suited to it and mm-hmm. want to do it, um, and not just anybody who could fill that role. We don't have all the answers. That is true. When it comes to happiness within your work, there are people listening that don't have the option to switch careers, they're either in a contract or it's just not feasible for them. How does someone find happiness? This is, we're talking maybe a third of their life is allocated towards work. Maybe even more. How do they find happiness in something that may not be openly happy to them? So that is a surprisingly common scenario. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of reasons why people develop that kind of feeling, even if they initially were very enthusiastic and loved their job. Um, over the years and over time, they change, their life changes, their experience of the work changes. So a couple of things. I mean, one is I would refer to a work of a psychologist, a Harvard psychologist, Daniel Gilbert. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. I always say yes. But the other other guy never really knows. So, yeah, I'm very familiar with him. Well, he does a lot of research on happiness, um, including some very famous studies where he tracked people who won the lottery and people who became paraplegics Mm. and looked at their changes in level of happiness over time. Um, And it's a very persuasive, famous study. And uh, his outcome was a year out, the two groups are equal. I mean, they're just about as happy whether they won, you know, millions of dollars or they lost use of all four of their limbs. He didn't study paraplegics who won the lottery. The confound, the limitation. Yeah. Um, but basically, uh, the conclusion from a lot of this research is happiness is to some extent an internally generated experience. Now, obviously, on the extremes, if your job is something that you're not suited to or if the people around, you know, of course... Um, that could generate an enormous amount of unhappiness and maybe something needs to change. Um, or if you're thrilled and you love your job, you know, okay. But for most people, it really isn't necessarily about the kind of work they're doing or who they're working for, and it's really about how they, how, how, what meaning they construe from it, what they bring into that situation. Um, one place where I find this a lot as an illustration um, is young people who are unhappy in yeshiva and want to leave yeshiva and go to college or go to work assuming that that change is going to lead to happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and many times I see them a few months later and they're kind of just where they were um, because the same underlying factors that led them to be, you know, having difficulties in yeshiva are leading them to have difficulties in college or difficulties on the job. Um, so a lot of it is about uh, identifying what it is for each person to, to, to maintain a, an adequate level of, of satisfaction. Some of that is balancing life-work balance. Um, and yeah, maybe a third of my life or two-thirds work could be pretty dominating isn't providing the kind of 
excitement that I used to. So I need to do other things in the rest of my life to kind of support that. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's self-care or friends or, you know, it could be anything. Um, a lot of that is about reinventing the way you do work, investing more in it. So this is something I find, you know, with burnout, people get burnt out and they're exhausted by their jobs. So they no longer pursue learning new things or training or doing things differently, which exacerbates the feeling of oh, same old, same old. Um, and it's very hard to to uh, get yourself to reinvest, but sometimes that's exactly what would lead it to feel fresh again. So, you know, in my field as a therapist, learning a new modality of therapy or treating a different kind of patient or going um, for some advanced certification, you're feeling burnt out, it's the last thing I want to do, but that would actually refresh you and bring in a new way of working or a new kind of work. Um, so sometimes it's about reinvesting, um, rethinking about it. Um, so it is a challenge, but it, I, I find it's, Generally, it's not necessarily the solution to switch jobs. It's really more figuring out how what you can change on your own, um, your own way of thinking, your own the rest of your life. Interesting. When you go to uh, Thank You Hashem Nation, tyhnation.com, their motto now is, a grateful life is a grateful life. <laughs> Do you see that in the world of psychology where it's not necessarily like you're saying what you're doing, but more of the mindset where those who are grateful and satisfied with their lot are increasingly more satisfied and content and what we're calling happy? Yeah. So I could answer that with empirical data. Over the last 10, probably 15 years at this point, um, I have a sustained program of research looking at actually um, things like Amun Abitachan, gratitude, um, and the relationship with mental health and life satisfaction, together with uh, my colleague David Rosemarin, um, up at McLean and from the Center of Anxiety. And we publish a lot of data on this particular topic. And yes, the data unfailingly uh, shows that for the vast majority of people, um, it's really about how they think of their circumstance. Um, and uh, gratitude, um, particularly towards Hashem, um, is extremely effective in, and very uh, highly correlated with life satisfaction, even more than general gratitude. That was a study that we published a few years ago. Um, but yeah, it's really, uh, it does, it is about how you think about it, um, how you experience it, the story you tell yourself about it, um, the meaning that you put into it. You can have, I mean, you could have two people. Let's say someone's an accountant for, someone does taxes, personal mm-hmm. taxes, okay? Uh, stereotypically boring job. And someone could look at their job as, okay, this is totally meaningless. I'm just sitting here, uh, you know, moving numbers around and paying the IRS. And someone else who does this job could say, look who I'm helping, all these young families that don't know anything about it. I'm, I'm, I'm helping them think about how the, you know, their finances in general work, but helping them pay their taxes and get the proper credit so that they could support their families and their kids. I'm contributing to the growth of Kaleosol. Without me, they'd all be, you know, be totally lost. And who would be doing taxes? So one person feels his job is very meaningful. The other person feels his job is meaningless. And it's really about the mindset um and that yeah that's uh, it could uh, lots of data uh, that actually back that up yeah so I, we love data um what else i mean you you see a lot of data points um people listening in how as it relates to money um what else are you seeing out there that you find interesting stories data points okay um, we're listening. So I'll, I'll, I'll share one very interesting study Go ahead. Um, that I, I conducted about, I mean, at least I feel it's interesting. You never know with research. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, say, I'll say, interesting to me, um, that I did about, uh, about five, six years ago. So one of the things I was curious was um, the relationship. It, it, many people from the outside would perceive having large families, particularly if you're lower or middle income, is significantly stressful. 
right, stresses a family's finance, um, and do large from families with not a lot of money, is the mental health of the parents affected by that? Are they going to have worse mental health compared to smaller families or families that have higher incomes? Um, and most people, I think, would assume, of course, I mean, right. they're struggling families. So I, did, I gathered four data sets. Um, I, da- I gathered uh, like survey data. I gathered uh, representative data from Israel, Israeli couples, from Israeli couples. I gathered data, two different data sets here in the United States, as well as clinical data um, from Biker Chalim and Munsi. They were gracious enough to share. And I looked at the relationship between family size and various mental health and family functioning outcomes. Is it moderated, meaning is it altered by income? So are families who have large families and little money, are they doing more poorly than small families and little money or large families with a lot of money? Mm-hmm. Um, and I expected to find something. And across thousands of people and measured in many different ways, each of these four individual data sets collected differently, measured differently, there was absolutely no relationship. Um, And no matter how, you know, independent of income, uh, family functioning, mental health, life satisfaction were independent of income and family size. Suggesting, which I think is most people's common experience, that despite the financial difficulty of having large families, from families are extremely resilient in, in that regard. I think, I mean, this is speculative, but I would because I think it's because of the story they tell themselves about the meaning of few generations and the importance of it, and um, all the all the religious values that are tied up in it, and it makes it um, extremely um, as difficult as it is something that contributes to mental health and life satisfaction rather than detract from it. Um, and I was very surprised by that. Uh, That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, even inspiring to know that exterior forces don't necessarily shape your level of happiness. The caveat, just to mention, is that, of course, on average data does not speak to any individual's family's experience, and there are, of course, families who struggle more, or families where larger family size wouldn't, you know, would be very challenging and difficult, but on average, it doesn't have an impact. So let's talk about that, especially within the from communities, with it being somewhat of a melting pot. There's a level of wealth disparity within our neighborhoods. And sometimes there's a large divide between the haves and the have-nots. So as an academic and someone on the ground, what is your perspective on that wealth gap inherently? Is it problematic or is it a healthy sign of a successful economic growth situation within our community? So there's a lot of dimensions to this question. There's healthy in the sense of moral health, there's economic health. I don't know how much, um, yeah, I don't know how much it makes sense to get into the political or the moral um, in this circumstance. I do think it's not only the from community. It's obviously a wider U.S. phenomena. There is tremendous uh, income and wealth disparities in the United States, um, a lot of it fostered by the economic system that we have. Um, but, you know, be that as it may, the, the challenge I find for people is, in terms of individuals, m- is the social comparison. So explain what I mean. Most people tend to measure their degree of success versus the people that are comparable to them socially, the people that they encounter. So if I'm living in, let's say, non-from, non-Jew, living in a middle-class neighborhood somewhere in Queens, okay, the people that I'm comparing myself to are my neighbors, my friends, the other people in the school I go to who are likely very similar to me economically. The from community, because of the way, the collective nature of which we live, because of the fishbowl, the small fishbowl, we all know each other, we all see each other, and we all meet each other in shul and by events, 
there is much more social contact and social uh, connection between very disparate economic groups. I think much more so than exists um, in the general U.S. population. And therefore, people's um, kind of standard of comparison is becomes is, is less to their peers economically and sometimes you know they're very aware of the people that make much more which mm. is which is very challenging um, and can be very very difficult for families um, and individuals um, and and um, again it really depends on how you look at it and the story you tell us about it and your values around it um, but that is that is a very real challenge you're you're you know in a, in a typical from neighborhood in Lakewood you may have a couple of people who are you know fabulously wealthy living alongside someone who's a Rebbe or someone and that is highly unlikely to occur outside of the firm community mm-hmm. they'd be segregated in a different community mm-hmm. you would never interact with them mm-hmm. you know and, and you would interact intimately with people from very different economic uh, brackets so that is a challenge no question what are some closing remarks if uh, first of all if people do want to get in touch ask you a question about some of the data points or quotes that you've shared um is linkedin a good way How so i am on linkedin yeah um i also you know as a professor in the graduate school of social work at turo um, i have a web page and contact information up there um and i do maintain a clinical practice in lakewood so if someone wants to get in touch with me they can reach me through that um so there's a number of ways uh, cool. they can get to me you can find me online what would you if you wanted to leave people with one thought something to chew on something to think about something that keeps you up at night something that lets you sleep like a baby at night <laughs> whatever it is uh what would you like to yeah. share so i'm more on the let me sleep kind okay. of side and maybe that's a deliberate choice like i'm saying to okay. think of things in ways that uh, work for me um but from what i see um as difficult and challenging as it is i think many the vast majority from families somehow manage to make it work um i know that transition especially from yeshiva Kyle, to work is very um, it's very challenging. It's a shift in identity. It's a shift in, in worldview and daily activities. Um, but for many of them, it's a five to ten year process, but it does sort out over time. What I would encourage people is to look at it as something that will unfold, something that they have to you know invest in and adjust to and kind of see it as a process um, and give it time. Give it time to, you know, not don't. The worst thing you can do is do nothing um, because you're afraid to do something. Um, so, uh, yeah, that would kind of be my parting words. Today, thanks so much for coming down. We appreciate it. Okay, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Buckle up because we have a whole lot more in the kosher money world. Next up is a personal favorite, David Bashevkin. If you follow him on Twitter, you know him as Dbash Ideas. He's written for publications. He has books. I don't know how many, but since we recorded his episode a month or two ago, he's probably written a few more books. Really insightful, funny conversation. We discussed money. I don't want to give too much away. Next episode coming up. Enjoy. This podcast has been hosted by my brother, Ellie Langer, produced by me, Yaakov Langer, and brought to you by Living L'Chaim. To check out other podcasts from Living L'Chaim, go to livinglechaim.com. Check out our YouTube channel. Check up Living L'Chaim on podcasts and do your thing. Until next time. Enjoy life. Living L'chaim.